Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Here we go! I'm Jack Hughes from Wang Chung. Hey everybody, this is Ivan from Men Without Hats. Hello everybody, this is Francis Dunry from It Bites. Hi everyone, this is Andy from Modern Romance. Hi everyone, this is Charlene. Hi, this is Dennis Seaton from Music E. Hi, I'm Nick Haywood. Hi, this is Kevin from Fiction Factory. And you're listening to the 80s Rewind Show Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. It's time. It's time to bring you yet another amazing episode. And now, welcome your host. The Face for Radio Burgess. Enjoy the show. Hello, hello. It's the 80s Rewind Show with me, Rob, the Face of Radio Burgess. And welcome along to the 80s Rewind Show podcast. How are you doing out there? I hope you're doing all right. So before we start today's show, I've got to say a massive thank you to Steve, who emailed in and said he really enjoyed the Ed Tudor Poe interview. Uh, and he found out some bits he didn't know about him. I was like, oh, that's amazing. So thank you, Steve. Uh, like Steve, if you want to email, you can go to... The80sRewindShow at gmail.com. And you can email me directly from there. If not, if you go to the website... www www.the80spod.com There's a click link on the bottom where you can email me directly from there. And don't forget, I've got a free gift for you, and it's still there. That's not moving. Uh, Fiction Factory uh, re-recorded one of their songs, Rise and Fall, uh, this year, and it was never released on a vinyl, only on a tape. And the Fiction Factory being lovely guys they are, they donated it to the 80s Rewind Show podcast website. Uh, so don't forget, get over there. Check it out. It's a great site. I've been working hard on it. I think you'll enjoy it. And don't forget to spread the love about the show if you can. Uh, write a review on Apple Podcasts. Spread it. Tell your friends. Tell your milkman. And I know your cup of tea for definite for that one. Or a green tea. Whatever you're into nowadays. Today's episode, I've got a fantastic, fantastic guest for you. It was so funny. We were d- doing the interview and we were talking so much generally about music, we run out of time. <laughs> so we, this is part one of the David Grant interview. Uh, so I spoke to the wonderful David Grant um, about his time in Lynx and his early days. Uh, he started as a drummer and he did a bit of journalism and we covered that in the podcast. I bet you didn't know that about him. Uh, and we discovered this. And then we got talking about our favourite bands and music. And then unfortunately, David had to go because he was <laughs> doing another interview. So we said, can we come back and do your solo career? And he said, absolutely. So we're going to catch up with him and do his solo career. But let's delve into his early days. He's absolutely wonderful to chat to. We had such a great time. I'm really looking forward to the second part of the interview. This is David Grant, part one. So let's do it. When you was a kid growing up, was there a lot of music in the house? Was your was your mum a big fan of music? Oddly enough, my parents didn't... My, well, I said my parents. It was my mum and my grand that I grew up with. And most of the music that they played was kind of gospel music. So I, I listened to like Mahalia Jackson and Sister Rosetta Tharp and things like that. But like a lot of West Indians of their generation, they loved Jim Reeves. <laughs> wow. I know it sounds incredibly incongruous, but <laughs> almost any any Caribbean household where people were born in the 30s and 40s and the kids were born after that, the kids grew up listening. At some point, there would be a Jim Reeves record in the house. <laughs> and mine was no exception. So I've been I've been walking around the house for the last two weeks. I don't know. I've been thinking about my mum a lot. 
And the other day, I was standing by the sink, the other day being last Friday, and I went, I love you because you understand it. And my 15, 16-year-old turned to me and said, Dad, I said, yes, darling. They said, never do that again. <laughs> I don't think the next generation is particularly big on Jim Reeves. <laughs> As for me, my music came from the radio. I was the the kid who had a transistor radio. I was given one when I was about eight years old uh, for my birthday. And I would listen to music nonstop. And I'd sing nonstop. My mum said before I could speak, I would whistle the songs that I'd hear on the radio. And I was obsessed with music. You know, and there are... There are kids of my generation who are going to understand exactly what I, what I say next, which is I was a kid who, once I got a tape recorder, I would record the charts every week so that I had everything that was in the charts, and then I'd listen to it throughout the week. I could tell you at any given point from about seven years old, every record that was in the top ten and sing it. Wow. And I was just obsessed with music. So even though there wasn't a lot of music, it was playing around the house. There was always music playing in my ear because I was glued to that transistor radio. And I listened to it at night in bed. I fall asleep listening to it. When I woke up in the morning and I, you know, got washed and dressed for school, the first thing I'd do as I was sitting there having my breakfast was to turn on the radio and listen to music. And I think that that was really good for me because I think at the time, there weren't music stations like they are now. If you love rock, you turn on a rock station. If you love country or R&B or house or whatever, you turn on the station that would play the music that you love. There was just the radio that played everything. Wow, yeah. A rock record followed by a reggae record, followed by a country record, followed by whatever, you know. And that was great because it, it meant that I grew up with the kind of unstated philosophy that there were only two types of music there was there was good music and there was bad music <laughs> that's great <laughs> and you had amazing diversity like you're saying as well it's rock country reggae it's all just all over the place so yeah, yeah. so it meant that, that when i started later when i started making music it was informed and not just by the music that i gravitated towards which was soul music and the music that i knew i loved but it was it was informed by everything that had touched me yeah, nice. Can you remember any standout bands at the time? Was there anyone that you were really waiting for the records to come out with? Oh, when I was a kid? Yeah. It was always the Beatles. Oh, it was the Beatles. I would want to hear the new Beatles record. When I was a little kid, I remember um, there was a lady who I used to stay with in the days before school because growing up with a single parent, mum would go to work, grand would go to work, and there was a lady whose, whose house I stayed at called Auntie Marge. She was a seamstress, so she stayed at home. And I would spend the days sitting under her sewing table, drawing or just listening to music. And whenever the Beatles would come on, she'd go, oh, this is the new Beatles record, David. Oh, this is great. And I didn't realise it, but I was actually developing a love of Motown. Nice, yes. I didn't know what it was called. But I discovered later that there were a whole bunch of records. I'd go, oh, I really love that. And that would be a Motown record. I really love that. I led to discover it was a Motown record. And so there was that. And then just a little later on, I think the thing that really sort of was a bit of a, a wake-up call for me, if you like, or a defining moment was the success of the Jackson 5. Because 
I loved music, but I always identified music as something that people who didn't look like me, who were much older than me, did. Right, yeah. Along came the Jackson 5, and there were a bunch of kids who were my age looking like me. And I was like, hey, I can see this. That had never, ever even occurred to me before. You know, the, the thought that I could translate my love of something into something that I myself did. Yeah. I think the Jackson 5, you know, was, was a connecting point for me, a point where I started thinking, I want to be in a band. I want, I want to make music. You're absolutely right. Around that time, there was no real influences like that at all, was there? No, they were the first kids, you know, then followed by the Osmonds, but they were the first kids that I, that I, that I can remember actually being really successful and making great records. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um, well, is it Who's Loving You? Who does that one? Um, that's amazing considering his age and he, he pours the emotion out of, of a guy that's in his like thirties and forties. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I later recently last, last couple of years, there was a, a Motown sort of a, a celebration Motown 60th year. I think it came out in 2019 and then it's Smokey Robinson and Barry Gordy were talking about, you know, their, their exploits of Motown. If you, if you get a chance to see it, it's really worth seeing. It's brilliant. But there was a point at which Smokey Robinson talks about, the 11-year-old Michael Jackson singing Who's Loving You and him thinking, I wrote that song and this little kid sings it better than I did. <laughs> it's true. It's strange. Yeah. yeah. But but when you, when you hear that, it makes you think, I think, you know, there's a saying now, didn't exist back in the day, which you've got to see it to be it, that when you see somebody who you feel you can identify with, doing something that you feel you really want to do it begins to spark in you the belief that you can yeah yeah definitely that when i heard i want you back and abc and the love you save and i'll be there and who's loving you i was just like not only is this kid great but he's a kid <laughs> That's true, yeah. yeah yeah it gave you uh, something to identify with that's amazing so yes it was it was a really significant moment. And then I started buying my own music, my own records. And I think, again, my taste really eclectic. You know, I joined a group, uh, stopped part of forming a group that was a vocal group. Right. When I was about 11, 12. And I'd had groups in school, in my primary school. I kept trying to form groups and I'd be, I'd be the drummer. Oh, right. Looking for a singer and a guitarist. I loved playing drums. I mean, you know, as as a drummer, I made a good cup of tea, but it. But I loved playing it. Then nobody else that heard me play particularly loved it. But that was <laughs> yeah. I do. And um, I, I, I just wanted to be in a group. The thought of being a star, if you like, or the thought of being successful, never even occurred to me at that point. But it was the doing of it. It was just I want to do this. It's like that my two obsessions when it came to doing things were playing football and and playing music. Yeah. You're not just playing and listening, which was an obsession, but playing and listening and then actually playing and participating. That's amazing. I didn't know you started as a drummer. Oh, yeah. I used to love playing drums until I, I realised that drummers could be really acerbic. <laughs> and actually, 
two things. I realized they could be acerbic and that it required some skill. <laughs> then the link track will throw away the key that we did. And I had a drum pattern for it. And when the song started, when we, we started working on the song, Sketch and I, um, I said to the drummer, this is the drum pattern that I want. And I sat and I played it. And the drummer was a guy called Andy Duncan. And Andy played with David Bowie and, you know, fantastic drummer. Yeah. And he listened to it and he went, yeah, I get it. It's going to be great when it's in time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> All right. You play it. And he did. And of course, it sounded like proper music when he played it. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's great. So you started forming your, your first bands and stuff. What, when was your first live appearance? Do you remember when you first played live? Oh, gosh, as a kid. Probably in some church hall when I was like 13, 14 years old. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. But one of the things that getting into music that way brought out in me you know, where I was playing with my cousins who were who were like really good musicians and, and they were all around the same age as me and you know, we had five of us and one thing that got me was the collegiate nature of music. You know, and that's one of the things that that I found when, when Link started much later on. I loved being in company. I loved making and creating with other people and then forming with other people. It was almost as much about the fact that I'm on stage in my team and I'm a team player and I'm a team member as it was about the audience. I really wanted the audience to like what we did. But if they liked it, it was our win. And if they didn't, we'd support one another and go, come on, the next one will be okay. You know, I, I think there was something that that's something that I really missed when I went solo that I didn't really value at all until I didn't have it. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Bands drive each other crazy until they're not there anymore. <laughs> Absolutely right. Uh, and I think it's one of those things in life, you you know, it's everything that you, you don't like about a situation until you're not in the situation anymore and then you remember all the things you loved about. <laughs> That's right. Then it's too late, generally, isn't it? It's yeah, too late. <laughs> um, so between being a young band and Lynx, was you playing a lot back then? Was you playing live a lot or was you just concentrating on songwriting and stuff like that? Well... Link started um, at the back end of the 70s. I had auditioned in my determination to be in a band. I thought, right, I want to find out about the music business. So I opened a record shop. And I thought, this isn't the way to find out about the music business. This is the way to find out about records. Okay, fine. And I loved it. But it was kind of a displacement activity. It was to see whether I could be engaged in music without ever having to make it. You know, because in a way, when when you don't know a way through and you don't know anybody and you think, I, I can't even get in the door. You know, we did gigs and nobody was signing my group. And it was, it just felt like we are never going to actually get an opportunity to get in here. There's something record shop. And I did that and that, that proved ultimately dissatisfying. Um and the reason it proved dissatisfying is because it wasn't what I wanted. I thought, you know what? I want to communicate. I want to connect with people. Okay. And I've always been good at writing. So I became a journalist. Well, there was a story to that as well. I almost accidentally became a journalist. One day I was listening to Radio 1. And I, I told you I listened to the radio all the time. They said, today we're interviewing Muhammad Ali. He's in promoting his movie, 
the greatest. And uh, he's doing uh, an interview with, with Baby Dramics this afternoon on Radio 1. So I called my cousin and I said, let's get down there. You, Because he was a really good photographer. So Paul, you bring your camera. That's smart. And I said, you've got to wear bow ties. And he was like, why? And I said, I'll explain it all when we get there. So we went down there, dressed smart, wearing bow ties. Muhammad Ali's entourage came. We slipped in with them, walked straight through security, straight into a lift, because they saw us in suits and bow ties and thought, oh, we must be part of the Nation of Islam. Most people were with him in suits and bow ties, because that was the look they had at the time. So they just thought, hey, the guy with the, the you know with the notepad conspicuously holding a notepad <laughs> and a pencil. And the guy with the camera very much be with you. <laughs> I love it. And we went up, we stood the other side of the glass as he was interviewed by David Lee Travis with my cousin taking pictures. And uh, like the Radio 1 DJs, a couple of them were up there saying, yeah, well, listen, here's our address. Make sure that you send those a copy of the pictures to us. And Paul was like, yeah, 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 no problem. And then we got outside and, I, and as he got into his car, I said, excuse me, Mr. Ali, can I have an interview with you? And he said, I'm glad you spoke to me because you're not with them. I could tell that. You're the only black people in the building. You sure as hell ain't with me. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I know. And I just want a break. And he said, everybody wants a break. Everybody, everybody deserves a break. I can't give a break to everybody. I said, look, 10 minutes of your time. And he said, I'm staying at the Park Lane Hills and I go running at 6.30. If you're there, you go for a ride around the park and may consider talking to you. Wow. So the next morning at 6.30, you were at the Park Lane Hills. And he came down at quarter to nine. <laughs> and he stopped traffic. And the first and only time I've ever seen this, he stepped outside the Hilton. A bus stopped. The passengers on the bus ran out of the bus and surrounded him. People stopped their cars, flung their car doors open. And within seconds, he seemed to be surrounded by hundreds of people. And my cousins, they're taking photos of this. Anyway, we eventually get to the park. We run around Hyde Park. I have photos to this day of me um, shadow boxing with Muhammad Ali. Fantastic. Pride of place in my collection of photos. This is way before links. And I spent about three hours with him after that doing an interview. I went back the next day, spent another couple of hours, and then just hiked the interview around to all the publications to see if I could get get it published. And of course, I ended up being offered a job, trained as a journalist, ended up writing music reviews, and then lost my job because of telling a lie about what I was doing when I should have been a boring council meeting and I was at a gig. <laughs> <clears throat> and it was the only time that something not boring ever happened in a council meeting and the editor ended up being called out to do it. Editor? The editor? He wasn't best pleased and there went my job. But <laughs> I had journalist on my CV, so I got a job at Island Records as a press office assistant. Fantastic. So I could really find out how the music business worked. And that was eye-opening. After that, I left. I left in the December of 1998. Never. Le- this is a tip for the kids. <laughs> Never leave your job to go to no job just before Christmas. 
That's amazing. I left there and I said, it's all right. It doesn't really matter because you know what? In six months, I'll be in the charts. It took us two years to actually even get a record out. <laughs> but the optimism was there. That's the point. Oh, the optimism, the drive, that thing that of I have nothing to lose. So I'm going to really go for everything. I mean, that's amazing. I didn't know that part about it. It's a very similar to um, Steve Harley and uh, Neil Tennant. They they were... Exactly. Yeah. I know Neil was a journalist as well. I didn't know that Steve Harley was. Yeah, he was a, he was doing journalism for a while as well. So you, you shared the same sort of story. That's amazing. There you go. And so, you know, uh, by then I discovered I'd met a, a, a few guys and we formed a group and we had a really great drummer called Mel Gaynor. We had a great keyboard player, and then the keyboard player was the first to leave. He went off to Berkeley in America to do a degree in jazz. But there were the, there were the four of us. There was Burton Sketch, me, and the drummer Mel. And then Mel left to join Light of the World. It was another Brit funk band, and that left me, Sketch, and Bert. And we wrote a song that was going to be our final fling because we spent every day writing songs because we couldn't afford to gig. Right, wow. We rehearsed behind a studio. They gave us a room that had a hole in the roof, so if it rained or it snowed, we'd have to like move all the kits <laughs> to the room. And huddle around colour gas heaters and <clears throat> basically try and write and come up with something. And we wrote a whole bunch of songs, and then the final song, because we were just like, Everybody was saying this isn't working. Only me and Sketch wanted to keep going. So I last hurrah was a song called I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The line, Mel had left so me button sketch wrote a song called Your Line. And um, I then went to a guy who, shan't be a guy called Brian Freshwater, who was working at, uh, at EMI Publishing who been the only person encouraging us, saying that you need to do this and this and this with your songs. I take them and pay them to different publishers, and they go, no, this guy would go, well, if you do this and you do this and you change that and you change this, this will help. I walked in, I played him three songs that I thought one of them could be a single, and he went, no, I'm sorry, no, no. Have you got anything else? And I said, well, I put a cassette in the middle of a rehearsal room, and we just, like, jammed this song, and I played him a jam, Joel Lane, and he went, that's a hit. Wow. I was like, no, really? <laughs> he said, yeah, record that song. I said, we can't. He said, why? Because we ain't got any money. So he lent us a thousand pounds. He said, half of this is for recording. The other half is to press up a thousand white labels and see if you can get any traction on it. So that's what we did. 
<laughs> and then I walked into City Sounds, that was a, a soul music shop, a dance music shop in Holborn. And I sold one box of 25. I was walking around telling these two big, heavy boxes reference. You know, it's like when you've got nothing to lose, walking into one shop after another, people putting on going, mm, not that two. I left four. I'm, I'm carrying 50. <laughs> and that's not light. I've got another 950 at home, but this rate will never get rid of them. <laughs> Walked into City Sounds and there was a new guy there who'd been there a, a couple of weeks. I wanted to see the boss. The boss was busy. I'm so glad the boss was busy because the new guy listened to them and said, give me a minute, went back to see the boss, came back and said, how many have you got? I said, well, I've sold five, so I've got 45 of them. And he said, how many have you got in total? I said, 995. He said, we'll have them. He said, we'll have them. So he took them. Um, and the guy was a guy called Mick Clark, who, thank God for Mick Clark. I think he must have been about 18, but he had such good ears. He would later go on to become an A&R man at Virgin. And he would sign Soul to Soul later on. So he had good ears from young. And... The next week, one of the DJs who walked into City Sounds played it on um, Robbie Vincent's Soul Show, which was one of the most influential radio shows for soul music. It all blew up, and we got a record deal. We turned the stone, came back to the party. I bet they did. <laughs> yeah. So you were Lynx at this point. Were you, were you called Lynx? We were called Lynx. Um, we decided on the name. We, we, we went through so many names. Oh, my gosh. The worst one. You know when you just think, oh, I like the sound of that word. Sketch came up with a name. Of, I like the sound of this word so for about three days. We were called Inertia. And one of us actually found the dictionary and looked up what Inertia <laughs> meant. We can't be called Inertia. You might as well call yourself over. <laughs> I, I get what he means, though. It sounds like a beautiful word, doesn't it? It's a beautiful word. Yeah. <laughs> Like, no, we weren't inert. So one day I was sitting in a bath, opening a newspaper while sitting in a bath, like you do, and there was a picture of a lynx, an animal, beside a join the RAF and, you know, like, learn by lynx, whatever they were. And I was like, lynx, that's a really good name. So I went with the suggestion and the guy said, yeah, good name, let's change the spelling. From L-Y-N-X to L-I-N-X. And, um, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. But that time the line was born and then it just blew up. Amazing. Did you gig much as links right previous to that? Like you said, you had no money. Did you hardly play live? We had done two days of um, showcases for record companies where we we worked, we were managed by the same people at the time managed the group Central Line. Some of the guys at Central Line came along and played with us and helped us. Um, and nothing we sounded really good on those days i think but nothing nobody's interested in this. and so we made your lying was a three-piece before it even came out but left so we were two piece 
So actually, we, we became a two-piece just shortly before the line was actually released, and that's how how we progress. Inspired by Steely Dan, we go, you know, they're a two-piece. They're getting the people they need. And then when we made the album, um, we made it with with three other guys, four other guys who were actually, we thought, okay, let's make this a band. But Sketch and I are like the focal points of the band. That was great. Once again, it was like being a team player. <laughs> so Junior Giskin was in the first lineup of the band. Junior Giskin was in the lineup that toured. Ah, right. We needed an additional vocalist. And, you know, Junior was starting to make waves with his group. And we just thought, we really want this guy on. He's a lovely guy. God, fantastic boys. And so we did that first Links tour. And throughout the tour, our producer and Junior, every sound check, they spend sort of half an hour together at the end of the sound check. And so after a little bit of this, you know, uh, the first couple of weeks of the tour, we start saying, oh, what are you guys working on? And so oh, we can't tell you, can't do it when it's finished. So about two weeks into the tour, at the end of a sound check, Bob sat at the piano and said, would you like to hear what we've been working on? And he went, yeah. So Bob started playing the piano and Junior sang Mama Used to Say. Wow, nice. Which was written on the Leaks tour. That's fantastic. Well, yeah. well, what was um, really lovely when I was talking to Junior about every time with Lynx, he did nothing but smile all the way through that part. He he became like, well, he was for that time on tour. He was he was a member of the band. He was such a great guy. In fact, later on when we had a song called Plaything, we went through. We had built that song up. We had a verse that we loved. We had a pre-chorus that we loved. And we went through about four or five different choruses and Junior dropped down to the studio one night and went, um, why don't you call it Plaything? <laughs> I said, he listened to the lyrics and he goes, this is like about somebody who's a plaything. And we're like, Junior, you're a genius. <laughs> so actually, Junior's voice is on that record, on that chorus. Like, I don't want to be a plaything anymore. That's sort of me and Junior singing that. Oh, fantastic. He's a, he's a, you're right. He's a wonderful man to chat to. Great guy. He's, he's lovely. And he, he did, like I said, he did not stop smiling when I was talking about the Lynx period. It was, it was brilliant. You could tell he's, he loves you and he loves that period. It's, it's wonderful. What was also lovely about that period, I have to be honest, is that, you know, um, that period was, it was a launch pad for me. It was a launch pad for Junior. It was a launch pad for Bob Carter who was um, producing with us, Ketch and Bob and I used to produce, because people liked the sound of the Lynx record and liked the sound of Mummy used to say. And among the people who liked the sound were George Michael and Andrew Ridgely. So the first couple of Wham! records were produced by Bob. Right. And what was interesting as well is that we had a guy who was engineering the first ever engineer album that he'd engineered on his own. Right. And he was a guy called Chris Porter. Right. Chris worked with Bob doing the Wham stuff. And when George Michael decided that he wanted to produce, he produced with Chris and then went on to produce all of George Michael's solo albums. Wow. It's, you're right. It's a complete launch pad, isn't it? Amazing. Oh, unbelievably Amazing. so. Yeah. And I mean, it's like, you know, they said a high tide floats all ships. I mean, so many of us that were part of that and then went on to become part of other things. And it was, it was, you know, the beginning of so many journeys. That's, that's amazing. It's like a rock family tree, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it really is. Because 
every musical journey has a starting point. And to have been, to have shared the starting point with so many other people, because what I don't want to give, I honestly don't want to give the impression that I was in any way responsible for the starting point. I wasn't. I just happened to have been there sharing it with other people for whom it was the same starting point. That's it. You collided with the others and made magic. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So can we talk about um, writing intuition? Like, how did that come about? Okay. Right, intuition. We started writing intuition um, and we had this baseline that sketch. It started with the baseline. And I was like, I love this baseline. I love this baseline. Let's come up with um, with a tune. A sketch was going, I've got this idea. You're my lady. You're my lady. We don't really do love songs. We can't we, we can't do happy love songs. We're linked. <laughs> we have to do like, if it's a love song, it's got to be a cynical love song. <laughs> <laughs> so as we played around with it, we had that da-da-da-da. And um, then I wrote, oh, yeah, the sketch, that was sketches. Remember, then I wrote a verse. So let's write about childhood. Okay, so we started doing that. We started writing about our mothers, how they would always suss us out. And we were having a real laugh about it. And <laughs> so once we've written that, we then had that four syllable phrase da, 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 da. What's it going to be? And it, I can't remember which one of us came up with the word intuition. And it was it. That's it. And then Sketch said, let's put some steel pants on it. I was like, no. <laughs> no. Why on earth do you ever hear funk music with steel pads? Come on. <laughs> and he said something that I think was really a defining moment musically for that song and for maybe the link sound. He said... Yeah, but remember this, we're influenced by American music. We're not American. We have our own background and our own history and our own influences. Let's inject some of our background into this song. So it's like, yeah, why not? So we did. So we came up with bum, 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 bum. So that was there. Then we went to the studio, put all that down, sang the song, and Bob Carter said, it just feels like it's missing something and I don't know what it is. And then about an hour later, he said, how about this? How about this? We were actually mixing it by this point. How about, hold on a minute. He picked up a guitar and he went, he said, how about that? So he said, where, where are you hearing it? He said, all right, play the track. Hit record. He went, dun, 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 dun. So you put that down all the way through the track, and that was it. It's amazing. It's just, it was it was it was a team effort. Yeah, yeah. It's, okay. it's just like studio magic, isn't it? Yeah. One brain working together. Yeah. It was absolutely brilliant. It really was collegiate. It's brilliant. And is it right there was a BBC strike that helped get it up the charts? Oh. Is that right? That strike. The song wouldn't have been a hit because we put a kind of typical brick funk track called Together We Can Shine on the other side. The soul music stations were playing Together We Can Shine. The pop stations were playing Intuition. 
but neither of them was playing either enough to give us massive momentum. And this was our third single. Our first had been a big hit. Our second, Rise and Shine, that everybody was convinced was going to be a top top three record, hadn't even dented the top 75. So a lot was resting on intuition. Um, and then what they would do on the chart rundown is they would go down as far as the top 40. But on the Tuesday, on a Monday rather, the BBC engineers went on strike. BBC stage people went on strike. So some of the pops were either not going to be on or it was going to be on playing videos. And this being 1981, not everybody had a video. So they went down the charts, they played top of the pops performances for people who'd been on previous weeks whose records have gone up. Like, we need videos. And we had moved up to about number 42 or number 30-something, really low 30s. And we were the last one to get on because we had a video. Had it been a normal week, we wouldn't have been high enough to get on. <laughs> um, it got on, and for some reason, it just caught fire. Yeah. Intuition became huge. I mean, it's an amazingly strong single. I think even if that didn't happen, I think you would have been up there. I don't forget to worry about the BBC. <laughs> well, you know what? All I know is that we ended up with the top 10 and suddenly Lynx had stopped in just a niche band. Yeah. And suddenly being mainstream. Amazing. So did it take long to record the first album? No. We recorded the first album in about six or seven weeks. We wrote the songs in a flurry. We'd had three years of songwriting up to that point. Never used any of those songs. Just wrote a whole bunch of new songs. Because by then, we were used to each other's process. That album was was written in a real burst and then recorded in a burst. Did it do well when it came out? Yeah, I think it became the first of the Brit Funk albums to make the, the top 10 in the mainstream sort of like charts. It was number one in the soul charts and it got to, I think, number six or number seven. In the mainstream charts, we were in the top 10 of the NME chart, the first sort of the first black British band to be on the front page of NME. It was significant because, you know, music was kind of underground and there was a racial element to music at that point. The black music was considered something that black people made. And if white people made it, it was okay for it to be considered alongside rock music. But if black people made it, it wasn't somehow niche. And so for Intuition, the album, to, to be in the chart and for us to be on the front page, it meant something at the time. It meant that, you know, we're here and we're standing alongside all the other people you've got on the front page. That's, that's amazing. When I was talking to Junior, he was talking about, um, he did his uh, single Kim Wilde and he was in France and out there they introduced him as Kim Wilde and Friend. They, they didn't even name him. I was like, and you forget that it's, you know, it was a different time. And that, that, that seemed to be fine at the time. You think that's just mental. <laughs> oh, I know. At the time, you know, black music, there were black music divisions in record companies. Their budgets were tiny. And the videos were always cheap. And the marketing was always less than. And um, so in the UK, UK black music farmers. And it just felt as though one of the reasons we signed with Chrysalis 
um, as opposed to EMI, who had also come back in the running, was that they didn't have a black music division. When we went and talked to them, we said, how do you plan to market this? They said, the way we market records. And we said, what do you mean? They said, well, the way we market Blondie or Leo Sayer or Span Up Ballet. It's just, we only know one way of marketing records. And we were like, okay, you're for us. Because <laughs> there wasn't a black way and a white way. There wasn't a premium way and a lesser way. There yeah. wasn't, you know, first class and economy. Yeah, there's a way and that's it. There was a way and we were going to be treated in the way. And that was good enough for us. It's like, give us a level playing field and we'll rise as high as we can rise. But don't let us start like like two steps back or five stepping back. Yeah, I, I love that. That's a great attitude. And then um, you went straight back into the studio again, pretty much, and did the second album, Go Ahead. Is that right? You went straight yes, back Yes, it in. was. It was mad because obviously we, we, were, we were madly promoting intuition and we were recording at the same time. And, you know, and so, yeah, I, I think there was a kind of, there was a kind of buzz and an excitement, but what there was as well is that we, we made, we made. I think we made a tactical error on one release, and that was just because we were just so busy. Two of the most commercial tracks on that album are, um, the 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 one. So this is romance, and um, I won't play the game. They happen to be the first two songs we recorded, so we caught them out as a double A side. It should have been single one and single two. <laughs> that was the only mistake we made with Go Ahead, I think. And I think Go Ahead would have been a bigger album if we'd have separated those two. I like um, Know What It's Like To Be Lonely. That's a fantastic track. Uh, yeah, yeah. That was that's, that's that was actually written out of that thing of, of okay, this uh, uh, now I've got everything that I wanted, but actually it's not what I thought it was going to be. And the thing with success is it makes you think you're, it's going to be something and you're going to be something that you're not. Yeah. People are either only more or less of themselves. They're not something other than they were before. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? All stuff that suddenly turn into Pegasus. <laughs> I can fly now. No, you're still a horse. <laughs> I, I love it. You just, you just got a better stable now. <laughs> it's a wonderful track. I'm gonna. I have a playlist on the. Um, on the 831 Show uh, podcast website, and I put a playlist of all the artists' tracks that I interview. So that track is going to go on there because people need to hear that. If they've never heard that track, they're going to need to hear that. That is lovely. Is and, uh, yeah, that was that was sort of like a very personal song to me, as was So This Is Romance. That actually had happened to both my cousin and I. His fiance and my girlfriend went away together on a holiday for a couple of weeks, didn't come back for three months. <laughs> wow. Absolutely. I thought there's a song in this. <laughs> yeah, there's always songs in tragedy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I found this um, go ahead to be a more sort of funky soul um, album than intuition. It, it seems to be more focused. It was a more confident album. Yeah, I think so. Something about success that gives you confidence. It certainly gave us confidence. And so it was a more confident album with songs as well that we thought we were thinking, we, we knew we were preparing for a tour. How's this going to sound live? How can we do this on stage? So there was a kind of excitement to the tracks because we were trying to to feel how someone would sound in front of an audience. Yeah. And we toured off the back of Go Ahead with half the set from Intuition, half the set from Go Ahead. The fantastic David Grant there giving us an insight into his early days. Uh, with links now don't forget to stay tuned and we're going to do the second part of the interview real soon Uh, don't forget to like and subscribe if you can and write review on Apple Podcasts check out the website and I shall see you soon this is Robbie the Face of Radio Burgess signing off 
This show is produced, edited, and presented by Robbie. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.